an article uh, last week caught my eye. I try to keep up on some of the news. And this article was going on to, to write about the top 10 countries that are the most progressive in the world. Now, just to remind you, uh, United States actually didn't make the top 10 list. But as you might expect, uh, one of the definitions of progressive is that anything goes. <laughs> if we, I would use that phrase. And even one of the countries is kind of where it kind of caught my eye is, I don't remember if it was Denmark or Sweden that now require clergy to have to perform gay marriages. And as I look at that and you go, okay, where's the culture going? Where my mind went was actually Canada, and Canada was on that list. And, and I don't know if you know, but the Evangelical Free Church actually has a school in Canada on the West Coast in Vancouver, B.C. And it's a fairly large, growing uh, university. And they are in a battle right now with the government because they want to put in a law degree where they will have lawyers. But the reason why the government is going, we don't want you to have this, and it's in the courts right now there, is that you have Christian values. You're going to teach the Bible as the basis of truth. So that challenge, but it reminds us again that the culture, we're, we're headed in a, a direction where this culture is going to be very difficult to walk with Christ in years ahead. Um, and I think that's a reality that we have to live with. But here's where I'm going to take that, and I want to throw you a scenario. And imagine this. One day... God comes to you, dream, email, telephone, text message, and you know it's God, and he reveals to you that the culture around you, the country, United States, is going to get worse and worse and worse and faster and faster. It's not going to be fun at all. And you're concerned and you hear this message from God and you go, you know what, i got kids and I, they're going to have kids, they'll have grandchildren, and you think of the generations beyond. You know what I'll do is I'm going to write a letter. And when I pass on, I'm going to have those different generations read what I'm going to tell them. I want to give them some stuff. Now the question that I would submit to you, if that was you, you got that message from God, and you knew it, what would you want to communicate to your children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, that you knew for certain the next hundred years was not going to be good at all, Christ wasn't going to return, so we can't use that, what would you communicate in that letter? Well, let me throw you one more question there. So you, God tells you, culture's going down the tubes the next hundred years. What would you want to say to God if you approached him? What would you want him to hear from your lips and your, what, you, what you would be thinking? See, today... We're going to start a new series, and you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. And we're going to jump into this short book. And Habakkuk is a prophet in the Old 
Testament, and, and one of the reasons why I, I chose this book is that it gives such a great picture of a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And it gives this dialogue, it's really the whole book is this dialogue, and, and we're going to glean some things out of this book, and today we're just going to introduce this. But it, is, it shows the honesty that we need to have as we approach God, especially when times are hard. Look at verse 1, let me just put that on the screen. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And I'm going to stop here, and, and here's where I, I need to give you a little bit of a timeline. And now, one of the challenges I've discovered in, in timelines is that you look up three different timelines, and they're all a little bit different, okay? But just for kind of get the chronological order, somewhere around 2370, you had the great flood and Noah, followed by the birth of Abraham. Then it was the covenant was given to Abraham in 1943 B.C. Israel then goes to Egypt and, and, and is sitting there, and their persecution is taking place. Then it sets out in the desert around 1513 where Moses leads them away from Egypt. 1473, Joshua, as they cross the desert, they get up to it and Joshua finally brings them into the promised land. And if you need to notice that there's the next 330 years are ruled then by judges. Samson, for example, was one of the judges. And it was somewhere after the judges kind of got to the end where, where Israel and Judah are going, we want a king. And, and so Saul becomes the first king. And he's followed then by David and then his son Solomon. And Solomon builds the temple. Now, it was at this point, I don't know if you realize it, this was kind of the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. That, that the, the country was united Everything was going really pretty well under Solomon. Uh, he got into some trouble. He started marrying all kinds of different wives from different, and then it kind of went downhill from there. And after Solomon died, the country then split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern tribes didn't want Solomon's son to be a king. And, and, and so there was this split in the country, and the north have their own kings, and the south has their kings. Now, the interesting pieces to it is that in the north, they had 19 kings in the history here, and 19 out of 19 walked away from God, didn't give a rip. And in the south, they had 20 kings, and only eight of the 20 really worked to bring the people back to God. So 8 out of 39, not a real great percentage in terms of godly leadership in a country. So that they get through the kings, and all of a sudden, 1740, Assyria to the north ends up taking over the northern kingdom. And it was at this time that another empire began to grow, and that was Babylon. Uh, and so the when, when this... We'll get into the passage here. The Chaldeans were one of the early components of Babylonian Empire, and they were a kind of a nomadic tribe, and, and, and really where they came out of would be kind of southern part of Iraq today. That was kind of where they came from. 
And they began to push then against Judah and against the southern kingdom. But it's during this time period that you have the minor prophets come on the scene. So it was just before Israel gets taken away to Babylon and during the exile and after exile. That's kind of the timeline here. But then in 625, you got Nebuchadnezzar. The temple is destroyed. Uh, 1537, the Jews return to Judah. And now the Persians begin to take over for uh, the Babylonian Empire. And uh, they actually kind of release Israel. You can go back to, to uh, Israel. They were in captivity, if you remember. And, and it's interesting there, I don't know if you remember this stat, but, but only about one out of five returned from Babylon back to Judah in Israel. Uh, they were more comfortable in the country where they were at. But then all of a sudden, he realized the wall and the temple are rebuilt. And, and then about 400 B.C., there's what's called the 400 years of silence. It is where you don't really get any more scripture. The prophets kind of disappeared, and, and there was this intertestament period. And then about 400 years later, we have 0 B.C., and where you get the first Christmas. Now that's kind of the timeline, but these minor prophets had a purpose. Because the kings were just so wicked and just so bad leadership, the, the prophets were used to try to wake up the people of Israel and Judah. See, the people were just spiritually cold. And they were just trying to get responses. You know what? Follow God. Follow God. And all of them came on the scene with that same voice of turn to God, turn to God. But in this conversation, this book has a conversation, and that's kind of the context of it. Okay? So, so here's where I want to put Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 on the screen. And let me show you his first dialogue with God. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Now, if in your Bibles you notice one thing, this is actually in poetic form in this, um, this conversation. But this book, again, is a snapshot of, of the prophet Habakkuk talking to God. Now, ESV is more, that was an ESV version. It's more literal. I want to put a version that's a little more expressive, where you kind of catch the heart of Habakkuk. This is from the message. Look how it goes. God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do we have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil and stare trouble in the face day after day? Anarchy and violence break out. Quarrels and fights are all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. The wicked have the righteous hamstrung and stand justice on its head. Let me summarize some of the complaints that he's spewing to God here. In that verse 2, it goes, How long shall I cry for help? If you're taking notes, I said it this way. What is he accusing God of? 
God is ignoring Judah. God, you're not responding. You're ignoring me. You're not answering my prayers for this country. You know, then he goes on and says, violence and you're not going to save. What's the summary number two? I, I think it's this. God does not care. God, you're idle. You're just standing by. And then in verse 3 it says, you make me look at iniquity. Why do you make me look at this stuff? It's all before me. And I think the summary of that, i got to look at all this filth. And number three, God is just not taking this seriously. And then in four, it talks about the law being paralyzed. Justice is not working. The wicked gather around the righteous. And justice is perverted. Number four, on your notes, I said, truth and justice doesn't triumph over evil. That's a lie. And number five, I said it this way, God is powerless and gives no justice. Now, Habakkuk feels a little bit alone here. And he's addressing God in a very personal way. But if someone next to you began to speak like that, began to complain and spew that toward God, what would you do? They might get struck by lightning. I just don't want to be too close. Isn't that a little bit where we would go? Wouldn't we slide away and go, this guy's in trouble? But, but see, there's a question. I, I threw it on your notes. When was the last time that you complained to God like this? See, the question, are these questions that he's raising fair and okay in our relationship with God? You know, maybe a summary question with this. God, why do you allow evil in this world? Now here's where I gotta stop, and in the introduction today, I, I gotta give you a little bit more history. Because it gives the circumstances and it broadens it and it gives us some depth that I don't think we don't catch when we first read it. And, and on the screen, I wanna let me show you the kings. And again, this is kind of the timeline of the kings. First, there's Hezekiah, and you, you saw that it's a lighter blue there. Hezekiah was one who walked with God, who was looking for the nation of Israel and trying to get them to follow Yahweh. And then his son Manasseh comes on the scene. Not very nice guy at all. And then Amon comes. Not very nice and evil king. Then Josiah comes along, and Josiah was one who had a heart for God. And Josiah, if you remember, he tore down idols that were put up all over, and he actually, one of the priests, found the law that was missing and wasn't being read in the country, and he takes it and he reads it, and he's trying so desperately to change the tone of the land and to bring people back to God. And once he died, the context there is the Egyptians started to come in, and there was a pressing of two different nations, and he eventually got killed. And then his son Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim came into plays, and Jehoiakim after that, and Zedekiah, those next four kings, all of those were evil. 
And it was during those, somewhere in those last four kings there, this is Habakkuk. This is where the prophet was at. See, Hezekiah was trying to turn the nation, but his son turned him away from God. Josiah tried to turn him, and they didn't, it didn't last. It didn't last. He so desperately wanted to reform this culture and the cities and the, and the temple and all of the people, and it just didn't take root in their lives and their hearts. See, the roots of sin ran very deep in that country. And the roots of sin, I don't know if you realize this, actually trace back to Manasseh. And I want to read you some of the, gives you a, a picture of who Manasseh was. Matter of fact, the passage in his Exodus 20 where the sins of the father are visiting the third, the fourth generation, that's going on here. Look at 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. I'm guessing he wasn't a very nice 12-year-old kid. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hebzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, good king, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made as an Asherah, as Ahab the king of the Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and he served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars on all the hosts of the heaven, the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. Nice dad. And he used fortune telling and omens and he dealt with mediums and necromancers. I don't know if you know that. It's a term of, of talking to dead spirits. And he did, e did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave them to the fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses had commanded them. So he's putting altars and evil stuff in the temple. Verse 9, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So as they were going into the promised land, you recognize there was a whole group of evil people, and it's saying here that this guy was even worse than them. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, the king of Judah, had committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and he made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. 
And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish and wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till it had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Nice guy. And you catch that? He was bringing other people down that path. And the sins of Manasseh were finally catching up to Judah. And that's the context of this conversation between God and Habakkuk. Now now catch this. The nation's, Habakkuk's complaint is not about Babylonia or the Syrians. This complaint is about the people of Judah, God's chosen people. They had forgot justice. Evil was running wild. Spiritually, they were just heading down the tubes. And he complains to God. But look how God responds in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And look at the work, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings on their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from them. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand and it's At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk complains to God about what's going on in Israel, or Judah. And God comes and tells him that he is going to raise up a group of people and allow these people to sweep over Israel. Judah. Now, why would God do that? We're not going to get there today, next few weeks. But I got some really good news for you. We live in 2014. And the good news is that God would never allow this to happen to us today. See, God is a God of love and He's supposed to bless us by taking away the hard things in our lives. Right? You see my tongue in my cheek? (laughs) Folks, this study, as we jump into this short book, and today we're just scratching and doing the introduction, it reminds us of who God is and how He works and how we intersect with that work at times. But let me just kind of introduce here today, I want to throw you some observations that we need to remember. And I want to put back up verse 2 on the screen in part of 3. It says, O Lord, this phrase, how long shall I cry for help? 
and you'll not hear me, or cry to you violence, and you'll not save. And then this question in three, why? Why do you make me look out at all this sin and this stuff? Now, now if, if you're taking notes, I said it this for an application. The questions of how long and why are realities of living in a broken world. Don't we at times when things aren't working right, we go, why? Why? God, how long, God? Now, here's the challenge, I think, for us. Oftentimes, I think, growing up, we create this definition of who God is, and we put him kind of in a box, and we make it neat and clean, and then we put the lid on it, and we go, we got God figured out. And one of that beliefs that I think we sometimes throw in that box is this. If we ask those questions of God, if I go to that place where I ask God really honestly like he did, why? We tend to, we go, okay, maybe I'm just either immature or I'm weak spiritually. Because in the back of my mind we're going, I don't think we're supposed to ask why. See, if we ask those hard questions of God, what if he comes back and punishes us for that? For our doubt? And he asks the question, where do we learn that? You know where I think we learned it was from our parents. I think they taught us that, and maybe even pastors somewhere in the past. Because if I have to be honest, I, I think as I've communicated my children, I, I subtly taught them and said, don't ask God why and for how long. And if you're asking God, what it really means is you're rebellious. And I go, according to this book, no, it's not true. Have you, as a parent, ever had things not go so well? There's been some strife between you and your child. And as a parent, you kind of maybe point a finger or mentally point a finger at them. And as they're arguing back, we're going, not another word. Don't complain. You be quiet right now. Obey me or else. Don't think, don't talk, just be quiet and listen. Am I the only one that's done that? <laughs> Anybody else done that? But see, subtly what we're communicating is that, you know what, don't ask anybody in authority why. And Habakkuk's doing that here. But folks, asking God these questions, I don't think means that we're living in rebellion against God. We're trying to understand a broken world, and that's what Habakkuk is going, he's trying to deal with. Life wasn't working for him. Now, I suppose there's a time, there's maybe a line there somewhere where it's a reverence, and we get, yeah, there may be. But I think at times we need to be honest with God and ask the hard questions, just like Habakkuk. But let me give you another one, I think, as I see it, kind of an overriding principle here. Number two, God has enough grace and love for us to approach him boldly and honestly. And we need to learn to do this. 
We do it with humility and respect, but I'm convinced that he wants us to come to him and to cry out to him our frustration. And he wants us to approach him with our tears and our discouragements and our hurts. But but I think what we do, rather than approaching him honestly, we, we try to cover it under the rug. We throw it under the rug and then stomp it down and we put some verses on top of it. And I think one of the verses that we so quickly go to becomes kind of a mantra that goes, okay, I just remember the verse, all things work together for good. Stomp it down. All things work together for good. And we do that again and we try to convince ourselves. We try to convince, we go there without ever going to God. We scripture to actually avoid going to Jesus. Now, do all things work together for good? The answer is yes. It's not wrong. But bearing it without going to God and Him inviting, He wants us to come to Him. And there will be a day, this we hold on to as a truth, is there will be a day when we will understand why the hard things happen. But sometimes he goes, not yet, wait, and maybe even wait toward eternity. But do you understand the confusion here? We can't get into it today. Habakkuk goes, why, how long? And God says, it's going to get worse. What an answer. <laughs> now, no. And we can't go there today. We don't have time. Next few weeks. But see, can we come to God boldly with our hurts and our discouragements? And I think we can, and I think he invites us to that. And we see this in this picture and this conversation in the scriptures. But there's a third point here that i got to end with. And a reminder as I was reading that history and as I was pondering Manasseh and even the life of Israel over these kings and why the, these minor prophets were sent. And, and number three, I, I said it this way, God is grieved when his people pursue a life of autonomy. See, God was really concerned about the sins of his people. He loved this nation that he called out a nation that was going to bring the Savior into the world. This was God's chosen people. He cared for them. But can we fast forward to 2014 and and maybe apply this to the body of Christ, to the church? And and here's what I believe. As I was pondering this, I go, you know what? God cares more about his people, the church, the bride. He's far more concerned and he's jealous for the things that are going on within us, if we know Christ, than he is of the people out there in the world. So, So hear this. God's concerned with us. I don't think he's loving the world. He wants them to understand the gospel. But here's the the flip where we kind of flip and go, you know what, we become as a church more concerned about the sin out there than we do in terms of our own stuff. 
So we get all worked up about the things that are going on in the culture, in the culture where it's going, and we forget about what God desires for us as the body of Christ. And I go, to be overly concerned with that and not deal with our own stuff just isn't right. See, the call to love God and to be holy is not for the people out there. We can't transform them without them coming to know Jesus and them putting their faith in Christ. And once they have the Holy Spirit, then we can be concerned about them. The Holy Spirit isn't in those people. They're doing what they do naturally. Sin. And some of them, a lot of sin. But for us, we are a chosen people as well, just like the nation of Israel. We are the children of God. We're chosen people. And the challenge here is God was worried, concerned about the sins of Israel and Judah. He's also concerned about us and where we're going. And I think here's where we got to connect it because we go back to Manasseh. And when you look at what was his primary sin and how did he lead people into sin, I describe it this way. He helped other people commit idolatry. And what's idolatry? Don't take a narrow view where it's just bowing down to some things that he put in the temple. Idolatry is giving our love to everything else other than Jesus. And so when we focus on giving our love to stuff, this question, where do I find meaning? If my meaning is not coming from Christ and Jesus, at some point we're committing idolatry at some level and we're worshiping ourselves. See, that's the challenge. Because I think we do very good at, at, we avoid the moral sins, that outward sins, and on the inside, we're living an autonomous life. God, I'm in control of my world. I rule my own world. That's idolatry. And God is saying, follow me, come to me. You know, we can avoid all of the outward sins and still be rooted deeply in sin as a child of God. And we subtly were saying to God, I'm in control of my own life. I'm going to find purpose and meaning apart from you. I'm not going to let you drive my car. God, you're in the back seat or in the camper that I'm pulling behind the car. But even here, i got to stop and i got to remind us of something. There's still really good news. God is gracious. And even when we're doing that, and even to the people in Judah and Israel, the prophets were kept going, repent, turn, repent, turn. Come back to God, love him, give your love to him, get rid of the idols in the world. Seek him, obey him. See, that same message really is for us today as well. And the good news, God just stands here and goes, can people come back to me? Repent and turn, walk toward me, and ask the hard questions of even why and how long. And I'll walk with you during those times. And he's saying, I want to be with you at those times. And what we're going to discover is that God was with this prophet.
Habakkuk learned some things and understood some things because of this interaction that will test us and push us in our faith and what it means to walk by faith. We need to follow Jesus and love him and turn from the things that don't give us, that are giving us meaning and it's an illusion. And he wants to say, can people, let's engage me. Let's stand and pray.